Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. In today's conversations about the environment, the focus is often on climate change, global warming, shrinking ice caps, wildfires, and so on. But it seems we haven't really been talking about air pollution since the 1980s when it was such a hot topic. In fact, a lot of cities have really kind of cleaned up their air pollution and it doesn't seem to be as bad as it was, at least not in the U.S. But the fact is that poor air quality can have implications on our lives beyond our imaginations. I wanted to address this issue that's just not talked about enough these days, in my opinion. And yet we have so many good ways of measuring air quality. I mean, on my phone, I have three different apps that tell me air quality from sensors all across the Bay Area. But what does it mean when air quality is poor or unhealthy for sensitive groups? Does it have a long-term effect on my own physical health? Is a week of breathing wildfire smoke better or worse than living in Beijing? So I talked to Beth Gardner, who's an environmental journalist. She's written for The New York Times, The Guardian, National Geographic, Smithsonian. And even though she's American, she's been living in London since the year 2000. And she's recently written a book called Choked, Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution. Beth Gardner, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hey, it's great to be with you. So your book uh, landed on my desk at a pretty opportune time, a time in which the wildfires in the Bay Area uh, have really affected the air quality. And it was the first time when I started to think not just about, oh, well, it sucks, you know, I can't go outside for a couple of days. But what are the long term consequences of having these events where, you know, the air quality is so poor, Um, you know, Being in the Bay Area, I'm extremely privileged because it's not like I have to deal with that all year round. But I wanted to start there with this kind with this question of so many, so many of us just take it for granted that the air we breathe, you know, if it doesn't feel good, it's bad, but you know, it's not going to sort of have long term consequences other than give us maybe a runny nose for a bit or, you know, but that's not true. Yeah. And, you know, when I started to learn that about five or six years ago, that was really what started me off on the road towards writing this book, because I'm an environmental journalist. I live in London. We don't have a lot of wildfires here in the UK, but we do have a really serious air pollution problem all across Europe. There's this awful situation with diesel and you can really smell it when you you know walk out on the streets. And I had always been aware of that, but it wasn't something that people really seemed to talk about that much. And I was working on a story that was to do with the London Olympics in 2012 and the sort of how air quality might impact on the athletes. And I was seriously, as I was getting ready to work on that article, spent like five minutes 
online Googling the science of air pollution and what it does to your health. And that was all it took for my jaw to really start dropping. Because, you know, like you said, this is something that sort of we don't necessarily think about a lot in our everyday lives. You can't always see it the way you could back in, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, when air pollution in so many developed countries was worse than it is now. But what I really started to learn, and, and you know, I've obviously since taken it a lot deeper, is that not only is the scale of the impact of air pollution on our health really huge, but also what shocked me the most, I think, was the variety of ways that it affects us. Because I would have been, I think, obviously, most people would be pretty ready to believe, you know, air pollution could trigger an asthma attack or something like that. But it's actually so much wider than that. You know, uh, high rates of uh, particularly these tiny particles that you get a lot of in the wildfire smoke, too, are linked very, very strongly by all the, the scientific evidence to increased rates of heart attacks and strokes and a bunch of kinds of cancer and dementia and premature birth and, you know, things that I would have never sort of intuitively associated with dirty air, like diabetes and obesity. You know, it's just, it, it goes so much further than our lungs. And you also start coming across when you, when you start looking at this, some really shocking statistics about, you know, the numbers of people affected by air pollution globally, 7 million people dying early every year because of dirty air. In the U.S., it's more than 100,000, even though our air quality has improved so much in the last 50 years. So, you know, that was what shocked me how profoundly this affects us. And, and that I, even as an environmental journalist, six or eight years ago, didn't even really understand it. So obviously, it bothered me you know, on a personal level, I'm a parent, I'm an individual who breathes, you know, dirty air. I worried about it. But also as a journalist, I, I started to feel like this is a really important story and it's not getting told enough. So that was sort of what started me on this this project. I feel like it, it's kind of went out of fashion. You know, like we, I remember hearing about air pollution in the 80s when, you know, and like, uh, it was it was a big deal then. And then especially in places like LA, where you would see the smog, and I lived in LA for a while. And it was a thing, but it seemed to be getting better. And it seemed to be like, okay, this is a problem that we know we had, but now we're kind of on the road to solving it. And then we just stopped talking about it. Yeah, exactly. And I think in some ways it's been the victim of its own success because you're right, it is so much better than it used to be in the U.S. anyway. Um, and that's really because of the Clean Air Act that was passed back in 1970. The Environmental Protection Agency was created that same year. And it's been, you know, not perfect, but a pretty good, you know, enforcer of all those rules. And so American air quality it's actually been a, a, a story of, of progress, sort of slow, steady, incremental improvement in air quality in the U.S. in the last 50 years. Like I said, I live in London, and it's a real um, contrast because I was surprised to learn as an American, you know, that actually U.S. air quality is significantly better than Europe's. And it's partly because Europe doesn't have an equivalent agency to the EPA, and they have really not done a good job of sort of making their regulations mean anything out in the in the world, whereas America has. So, you know, we 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 have actually come such a long way. And there's some some really good studies showing that 
the improvements in American air quality literally have saved millions of lives and trillions of dollars in the past 50 years. But unfortunately, as we've been moving forward, the science has also been moving forward. And what it is finding is that even at levels that would have, you know, years ago been considered pretty low, even at today's improved levels, dirty air is still, you know, making so many people sick and killing, like I said, more than 100,000 Americans every year. So I think you're right that it, that it has sort of fallen through the cracks a little bit. You know, we're so concerned, rightly so, about climate change. And these two problems overlap to a very large degree. But, you know, dirty air, the the sort of local pollutants that are coming from the same fossil fuels that are that are warming the planet, they're they're making people sick right now. You know, you you mentioned um, the London and I so I lived there at a very formative time. It was like right after college. I went and lived in, the, for, in London for a year. And I have like a real affection for the smell of air pollution in London <laughs> <laughs> because it was like I love that year. I had such a good time. And now when I land there and I smell the diesel, I'm like, I feel like I'm home. Right. <laughs> it's it's like, really gross. Though. Really messed it's up. Oh, it's totally gross. It's totally yeah. gross. Yeah. And I, you know, it, it's, it, it honestly still bothers me every day. And I think that's really what, what motivated me through, you know, the years of working on this book. It's horrible. And, you know, it's not just London. It's a, it's a really broad, um, you know, European problem for a variety of reasons, including at, at one time government incentives. Europeans are much fonder of diesel than Americans are. So Europe's roads are filled with these these diesel cars. But, you know, what I really started to understand, and it, it took me a long time to kind of get this, is that the problem for Europe isn't that they prefer diesel to gasoline. It's that they have not enforced their rules. And that's why the, the Volkswagen scandal was just like the perfect illustration of that, because VW was making these cars that were producing, you know, many times more pollution out on the road than they did when they were getting tested by regulators in the lab. And there's, you know, millions and millions more diesels in Europe than in the US, but they were caught and prosecuted and and convicted and fined in the US by the California Air Resources Board and the EPA long before they were caught and prosecuted in Europe. And the Europeans were kind of looking the other way because they're Their system has just not been built to actually enforce the law. And in fact, uh, across Europe, these cars are still out on the road and they're still being manufactured in in the U.S. VW was forced to recall and and do buybacks and actually fix the, the cheating cars. And in Europe, that hasn't happened. They've done these like little software tweaks, but there's still 50 million diesels on European roads that emit three or more times the legal, uh, legally allowed level of nitrogen dioxide. So they haven't even fixed it. I mean, I think that's it's really surprising because in so many ways, Europe seems so far ahead of the U.S. in regulations, especially when it comes to environmental regulations. It is in, in everything except air quality. <laughs> yeah, which is interesting. You know, you start out the book with this um, really beautiful description of how we breathe. Uh, And I wonder if you could share a little bit of that with our listeners, 
maybe you know because I haven't thought about the alveoli and you know the the the, the way the lungs work since uh, elementary school. So give us a kind of you know overview of kind of just how magical this process is. Yeah, well, I mean, it is amazing, and you know, the breath is so basic; it's so fundamental. I mean, I I don't I couldn't think of anything more universally human than the act of breathing, right? If you stop it for a few minutes, you're that's it, you're done. And it was really helpful to me to think about that because, you know, one problem I think with writing about air pollution is it's you always come across this idea of invisibility, right? That you can't see the pollution, you can't sort of as an individual non, you know, statistician, non-scientist kind of perceive the the impact on health. And so I was just looking for ways to kind of drive it home for people, like to help people kind of connect with with what this actually does to us. And I just kept coming back to this idea of breath and breathing. Um, So yeah, like you said, I I opened the book with a, a description, and it's just a total abstraction. It's not like an actual specific individual. It's just a description of, you know, what happens inside the human body when we breathe. And and the way I did it was that the opening paragraphs of the book is an inhalation. And then at the very end of the book, it, we re- kind of reconnect with that. And it's the exhalation. But it's such an intricate process. And, you know, I guess like most things in our bodies, it, it actually really sort of starts in the brain with the sensors that detect carbon dioxide levels rising, and they send signals to your diaphragm and the muscles around your rib, your ribs and pulls the air in. And, you know, the that air that comes in and those molecules that cross through the, the alveoli, these tiny sacs, air sacs in, in your lungs, cross into your bloodstream, you know, those molecules of oxygen go everywhere. They travel throughout your body, right? That's the whole point. They're going to your brain, your heart, your feet, your, they just go everywhere to supply the, the oxygen that you need. So when I started thinking about that, that was what made me realize that, you know, my original shock at how many parts of our body are affected by pollution actually shouldn't have been surprised, right? Because it's the whole point of breathing is to carry what we need throughout our bodies. And it turns out that, you know, some of these tiny, tiny particles of pollution can cross into our bloodstream too. And and scientists have now found pollution particles inside the muscle cells of the heart, inside the structures of the brain, you know, in in the umbilical cords and placentas of of newborn babies. So, you know, just in the same way that the I guess that's sort of the darker side that that the oxygen is being carried around our body to keep us going, but so is the pollution. So it was like a real way to kind of try to make it feel more visceral, I guess, to people because it is. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think so, as you mentioned, so often we just take it for granted because it just happens that we have just the kind of automatic ability to breathe, but we can also consciously control it. And, uh, you know, wh- one thing I loved is that you say, you know, a- a- and you're exactly right, um, that 
that are, you know, it's the first thing we do when we're born. It's the last thing we do when we die. Um, we had a cardiologist named Heider Verreich on the show a couple weeks ago talking about the heart and, you know, essentially how heart rate was considered to be what keeps us alive. But for a lot of people, it's breathing. And in fact, it's that last exhalation where you lose, you know, some couple hundred grams uh, that kind of is the end of life, is that is the release of that air that causes this like slight weight loss, you know, and there's, 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 you know, people have talked about that as like the soul leaving the body, um, you know, if you if you believe in a soul. Yeah, right. It's it's like definitional, isn't it? I mean, breathing is life. I guess I'm not a doctor, so I wouldn't want to say whether, sure. you know, <laughs> no. your heartbeat or your breath is more important. But I mean, I guess they're they're both pretty important. Yeah. So the other thing I was going to say is that, you know, I'm also an opera singer. And, and one of the things that my voice teacher has told me for years and years and years, this is sort of fundamental to how she trains us, is the idea that sometimes as opera singers, we take a breath, like we try to control it too much, we open the rib cage, we try to, you know, control the diaphragm. And that pulls tension into muscles in our bodies that actually are, are not very good for singing. And instead, she says, you need to let the breath take you, you know, that you don't take a breath, you sort of allow the breath to happen. And you know, I think there's also this, this movement now, at least in Northern California, with yoga and meditation and the importance on focusing on the breath. Um, and so I feel like we're kind of in a, in a renaissance time where we're starting to think about the impact that the breath and how we control it and how deeply we breathe can have on just so many aspects of our well-being. Right. And I mean, then that makes you ask what you're talking a lot about the process of breath and the experience of breath. And then the other piece of that is what are we actually breathing? And that's that's why this is so fundamental. You know, you were talking about the wildfires before and that that's just such a um, it's a real rising issue in the air pollution world, you know, and we're used to sort of pollution coming from cars and power plants and factories and things like that. And wildfires are really a, an area where this where you can see so clearly how this problem of air pollution is connecting with climate change. Obviously, you know, we we all know that climate is is making things drier and hotter, and it's making fires more, um, you know, frequent and more intense. And that's why, like in San Francisco, where you are, and, and all over the West, you're starting to get, you know, pollution levels at times that are comparable to what people live with in, in places like Beijing and, and Delhi, and, you know, some of the worst polluted cities in the world. And, you know, in developed countries, we've mostly not really had to deal with that so much. So it's a little bit of a sort of unpleasant taste, I guess, of what what people in some of the developing parts of the world are having to experience and having to go through. But I was talking to a, a scientist recently from Colorado, who's been going up in in planes and taking samples of wildfire smoke, because, you know, scientists don't even really know what's in all that smoke. Um, it's a real kind of emerging area of research. Definitely, they know that it's got lots and lots of these tiny particles called PM 2.5, which are what I was talking about before, the ones that are so dangerous because they go so deep into your body. But there's also all these toxic, you know, chemicals and substances. And that's a, an area that's really just starting to be explored. But one thing she told me that was really interesting is that, um, you know, it used to be in a sort of era of less intense 
wildfire seasons that the wildfire pollution would sort of cause these temporary, you know, spikes in, in air pollution in a certain area, and then they would go away. And now the spikes are getting so big and, and long and frequent that it's actually really impacting on the sort of annual, you know, average when they, when they calculate what's the annual air pollution in LA or San Francisco or Seattle or whatever. So it's telling you that it's really something that is taking a toll on, on people's health. Cause that, you know, that matters for your, your well-being in the moment and over the long term too. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's definitely something that uh, we all worry about here in San Francisco because you can smell it in the air and it makes you feel sick right away. And, you know, people go out and they buy these, like, we've all become, you know, very, very good connoisseurs of the masks. Like, <laughs> you know, I can tell you my favorite brand and, you know, what, what you have to be like P95 or whatever it is. And the problem is, is that people put these on uh, children thinking that they're protecting their children. But there's some data out there showing that, in fact, it's not very good because the kids can't really regulate their breathing well enough so they end up just like breathing their own carbon dioxide when they're using these masks so anyway that's kind of a psa for parents out there who are thinking about this you should you know talk to your pediatrician because it's not quite as simple it might be doing more harm than good but the one thing that makes me feel like okay well this is still not so bad is that as you mentioned when you see these levels of like now i have all these apps on my phone that that track air quality and it's you know it gets bad and then I think about there are people who live in you know Delhi or you know parts of the world Beijing where they live with this all year round and they're still alive (laughs) so so like yeah so like how do you but you know is that is that something that you know I guess that would be my question for you is that like we have these spikes in really bad air quality uh, as a result of some of these climate change events but what is the impact or what is the difference between that and someone who lives in a developing country where they are constantly exposed, but perhaps to a different kind of, you know, um, set of ingredients in the air? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the more pollution you breathe, and the more sort of regularly and the longer that you breathe it, the worse that's going to be for your health. And there are, you know, numbers out there, there are calculations that that scientists have done where they'll say, like, you know, air pollution in a certain place takes this much time off, you know, the average person's lifespan. In Delhi, I I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it's like seven or eight years. I mean, their pollution is so bad. Obviously, that is not, you know, a perfect sort of figure, right? It's not like everyone lives exactly seven years shorter than they would have otherwise. It's, It's not necessarily distributed in that way. But I mean, I think the thing that's so makes this issue sometimes so hard to sort of get your your head around is that even though it's very clear from the science that you know this level of dirty air is adding x number of heart attacks or x number of strokes or x number of deaths in a certain area 
that that's very strong, right? Like that science is very, very rigorous. But at the same time, on an individual level, you can almost never say that that's what caused this one person's, you know, illness. If I have a heart attack tomorrow, no doctor is ever going to be able to tell me, oh, it's because I lived in New York when I was in my 20s on a, on a really polluted, you know, heavily trafficked street, or it's because I lived in London and, and breathed the diesel all these years. Like, it just doesn't really work that way. So you can't apprehend it on a on a personal level. And of course, that's sort of how we operate as humans, right? It's like on a personal level. A place like Delhi, the pollution is so bad that, you know, you you hear stories and I, and I know people there who've talked about, you know, losing a, a, a parent or a sibling or friend to lung cancer who never smoked, you know, so at a certain point, it becomes so bad that people actually can, you know, see it sort of with the naked eye in, in their lives and, and say, like, something's going on here. But, you know, in in a place like the U.S. or the U.K. or Western Europe, even though we we do have a pollution problem in all those places and it, and it is actually killing people, we can't sort of see it without, you know, statistical methodology that most of us are not up to speed with. So it's it's hard. It's hard in that way. And I think that creates a political challenge, too, around, you know, sort of generating the will and the demand to actually do something about it. So, you know, we generally we've and we've we've been mainly talking about pollution that comes either from cars or from burning fossil fuels or wildfires. But in some of your other chapters, you talk about ways in which uh, air quality is is hampered by other things. So um, in particular, I was struck by your discussion of what's happening in the San Joaquin Valley. And maybe that's because it's sort of not far from where I live. But I think for a lot of people, you know, the idea of a rural paradise where you can escape uh, and get good air quality is something that they think of as, you know, a no brainer. But your your work was suggesting that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, and it's much less true than it used to be. So this the San Joaquin Valley is, is part of the Central Valley. And, um, you know, I was fascinated by that, too, because I also had this preconception that, you know, this is air pollution is an urban problem. It's not a rural problem. But actually, it turns out that all these really intensive industrial scale farming methods, you know, factory farming with like thousands and thousands of cows or chickens or whatever in a in a really squished into a really small space together to crank out, you know, milk and other products is, is really bad in a lot of different ways for not just the environment, but for the health of people who live around there. So the San Joaquin Valley actually has, by some measures, the worst air quality in America. You know, part of that comes from the fact that that there's tons of trucks coming through, bringing the the agricultural products in and out, and they're surrounded by a lot of mountains, so the, the air can't blow away. But a big ag, which is, you know, a, a huge part of the economy there, is a really big contributor through all these, like, weird things that weird to me that I never would have thought about. So they have these huge, they call them manure lagoons, where the manure from thousands and thousands of cows is, you know, pumped in and sort of aerated. And it it puts gases into the air that combine with other pollutants and and create um, particulate matter. There's these huge, it took me a while driving around the San Joaquin Valley to know what these were, but you see these huge like piles, these like mountains 
of something covered with white plastic tarps. Um, and it turns out that, that this is um, feed for the cattle. They call it silage. And it's like fermenting under these tarps. And when they pull them off, you get a lot of um, what's called vol- volatile organic compounds that go into the air. And those also become part of these airborne chemical reactions that create other pollutants that are really harmful to our health. So all these sort of unexpected um, sources of pollution. And also in, in rural America, you know, um, oil the oil and gas industry is becoming a, a huge presence now in so many places, um, whether it's fracking or, you know, sort of conventional old fashioned kinds of drilling. And that puts lots of chemicals and, and other pollutants into the air too. So, you know, yeah, it's an urban problem, but it's not only an urban problem. And, you know, when, when we do have bad air quality in San Francisco, we are all told to close all the windows, stay inside. And, and just, you know, even though I have two kids and like staying inside is just my own personal hell because um, I can't run around. But there's also this notion that there are pollutants inside the house that you can get exposed to uh, when the air isn't circulating properly. So tell us a little bit about, you know, it, sometimes I think that those are overblown because you kind of get, you know, a lot of fear mongering and this notion that, you know, it's really easy to to come across kind of dire warnings that just are clickbait where people are like, it's your house that's killing you. Um, so tell us what's real and uh, what is just overhyped. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. And I, I also tend to kind of come at it from that perspective. But there is actually some pretty good research now indicating that gas stoves and I have one in my house, like, you know, definitely did not realize this um, until pretty recently. Gas stoves put a, a pretty significant amount of part particulate matter into your house. And, you know, of course, that's sort of more concentrated and, and you're breathing it you know, more, more directly than you would be stuff that's outside. So yeah, I mean, and I guess that the, the upside of that, I suppose, is that that's an area where you can actually have some control and do something about it. Because of course, that's the thing that's so hard about other outdoor sources of air pollution, you you really have very little control over, you know, power plants and, and traffic and things like that. But, you know, if you're talking about inside your own home, I mean, there's a new generation of electric, um, they call them electromagnetic induction stoves, which are terrific in, in terms of how they work. And they're much less polluting for, um, you know, from the perspective of what you breathe in. And the, the other um, aspect of that is that they're also much better from a, a climate change perspective, assuming that you can um, power them with some kind of renewable energy like solar or wind. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, that would, that's always been my assumption is that electric, you know, ovens or stoves are just, they just use up so much fossil fuel on, on the one end. But I suppose if you have solar panels or, um, you know, renewable energy, then, then maybe that it, it is a better option nowadays than it might have been, say, 10 years ago. Yeah, electrifying in general, you know, is the answer to a lot of air pollution problems and a lot of uh, climate change issues. Because if you are running things on electricity, then you have the option of making that electricity be clean, um, which is just easier to do than it is with, you know, gas is a fossil fuel, diesel is a fossil fuel. So yeah, that, that is the future. That was what surprised me about your book is that, you know, I, I kind of expected to learn a lot about how awful things were. <laughs> 
<laughs> how awful they're getting. But fully like half of the book is an optimistic look towards the future. So, you know, give us some hope. What, 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 what's the good side? It's funny. I mean, like so many people, you know, I'll say to my friends or people I meet or whatever, I've, I wrote a book, what's it about? Air pollution. And definitely the universal reaction is, oh, that, you know, that sounds so depressing, important, but depressing. But I, I mean, I didn't find it depressing because it's actually fixable. I mean, we were talking before about how the United States, which like no one thinks is an environmental leader. At least actually, not right now. <laughs> right. Actually has made huge progress, right, over the last 50 years and saved millions of people's lives by, you know, passing a good law and then enforcing it and, and making regulations. So that, I mean, that does give me hope, I think, when it comes to air pollution because it really tells you that this is not, you know, some horrible, impossible thing that we just have to live with because it's like the byproduct of modern life and, you know, development and prosperity. It's not. It is often the byproduct of economic development, but it's, it doesn't have to be. And I think that that's especially true now because, you know, cleaner options are so much more available and so much more affordable than they were even a few years ago. And, you know, if you look at some place like China, I mean, I went there and, you know, they still for sure have a really serious air pollution problem. And I, I don't want to whitewash that at all. But because of their air pollution problems, and because people have really started to get angry about it, uh, China is, is actually doing something about it. And their air quality is a lot better than it was, um, you know, even sort of like eight years ago. I, I came across some numbers recently that Beijing's air pollution has gone down by went down by 60 percent between 2010 and 2018. Um, and it's because the Chinese government spent, you know, billions and billions of dollars on on wind and solar power. They're throwing tons of money at electric vehicles now. They, um, you know, created all these regulations to make coal plants put better sort of scrubbing and filtering um, equipment into their chimneys. And they put like boring but important rules on cars and fuel quality and all these sort of different steps. There's not just one answer, but they started doing a lot of the things that, you know, we know are the things that need to be done if you want cleaner air and they, they're seeing results. And to me, the thing that's hopeful about it is that the research on air pollution, it tells us really clearly that every incremental improvement, every little bit you can push the pollution lower and lower, literally you're saving people's lives, you know, and not only that, but like the money you're spending, you're going to save like dozens of times over by the health benefits. So you know, what, what more incentive could you want, really? And it's doable. We, it's not a problem that can't be fixed. It, it can be. And, you know, we just need to decide to do it. So that, that gave me some hope. Yeah. So um, in the US, and in, in we're about to enter an election year. So people have to make the decisions uh, based on the information they have available. And, and hopefully we can uh, put some candidates in office that can uh, continue to, to build on this bill that seems to have done a, made a lot of inroads on this problem. But what about um, what would be like one thing that you would suggest that people could do uh, to, to sort of make an impact either in their own houses, whether it's, you know, exchange your gas stove for an, an induction 
one or something else? Like, you know, what do you think that there might be one actionable thing that people can do to sort of try to address this problem in their own lives? Well, I mean, it's such an interesting question because there's always this this sort of tension between, you know, when it comes to air pollution and, and climate change as well, you know, between sort of like what we do as individuals versus what needs to be done on a on a much larger level. You know, you and I cannot, you know, force the entire U.S. energy system to switch over to clean power, right? We can't create better public transportation and, you know, make cars all be electric. Those are actually the changes that really will address this to a serious degree. So on some level, the answer to your question is, you know, demand that your politicians do something about this and take air pollution and climate change seriously. And the one thing that you can do is, you know, vote and get politically active. I guess that's two things. Um, but if you're also asking sort of like, what can I do in my own life to, to sort of deal with this and try to protect myself? I mean, one thing that I do a lot is if I'm out walking or biking or even driving somewhere, you know, it actually makes a really big difference to your own exposure to pollution to, to try to avoid heavy traffic where you can. If I'm walking out with my daughter in London, I will like go a longer way in order to avoid a really busy road and walk even one block over, like on a parallel street with less traffic, you're, the pollution that you breathe in could be half. You know, obviously, if you can walk through a park or something like that, even better. So th- that's actually something that's, you know, pretty worth keeping in mind. There are really big sort of hyperlocal variations in pollution levels. That's a really advancing area for the scientific research now these these um big differences in within small areas so it's worth thinking about that there there's a whole new generation now out on the market of um sort of portable air pollution monitors that you can carry with you hook up to your phone measure your own exposure and they're like 150 200 you know a few years ago they, they'd be thousands of dollars so you know, you could you could carry one of those around with you and, and find the way to walk to work or bike to work or whatever that exposes you the least. That's that's a, a step we can all take, I think. Yeah, I mean, one of the studies that stuck with me in, from your book is that it was a study of, of which they were looking at um, women who were pregnant and the rate of premature birth. So just give us an overview, quick overview of that, because that was really stuck with me. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. And the research was done in New Jersey, where I'm from. So it it felt very sort of close to home for me too. New Jersey a while ago switched over to, you know, the toll paying system, where you put the tag in your car, they call it easy pass on the East Coast, I forget what you guys call it out West, but you know, fast pass, pass, right. So there used to be these, um, you know, toll booths where traffic would like back up, and cars would just be sitting there idling. And th- there's much less of that now because everybody just zooms under with these electronic tags and you, you pay the toll without, you know, having to stop. So there was a group of scientists who sort of thought, all right, this is like a natural real world experiment that's being created for us because it really reduced the, the traffic backups in those spots. So they started tracking the rate of premature birth within, I think it was like a mile or mile and a half of each of those toll booth areas. And they found that when the easy pass was introduced and the traffic got less, 
the rate of premature birth for women in within that radius went down by 9%. So that's great. Like premature birth is bad. Like it's good to have less of it, but that's actually really scary because it's telling you that how it's nice that it was reduced a little bit because of, of, you know, the changes with the toll booths, but it's telling you that this highway exhaust that we are all breathing in all the time, whether you live near a highway, you're driving on a highway or, you know, you're, you're just going through the city and you're day to day that this is causing premature births. And that's just one of the many things that it's causing. But it was a very sort of neat and vivid demonstration of that, I thought. Yeah, I thought so too. I want to remind our listeners that Beth's book, Choked, Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution, is available at booksellers everywhere. And Beth Gardner, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. My pleasure. It was so great to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rayhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. See you next week.